This is a Piccolo podcast production. In this episode, we venture to the beautiful Sydney Harbour foreshore. This story takes place in a fairground nestled under the Harbour Bridge called Luna Park, which opened in 1936. I'm your narrator, Alex Malone. Welcome to Fairground Fuck Ups. The Godson family had enjoyed a big day out. They had taken in Taronga Park Zoo and were finishing off their Sydney trip with an evening at Luna Park, which is another jewel among Sydney Harbour's many attractions. After a fun-filled night, they had four tickets left. Should they go home or should they use up those tickets on one last ride? The ghost train beckoned. An hour later, the glow of the fire could be seen all around the harbour. Fire engines screamed down the road and firefighters attacked the flames of the burning ghost train at Sydney's Luna Park. The fire and heat were so intense that they had to pull back. The water pressure was too low so they had to pipe up the salt water out of Sydney Harbour through their hoses. Two girls had already been saved by park attendants but the fire was hot as hell and no one else could enter the smoke and flame filled ghost train. Parents ran everywhere looking for their loved ones. Black smoke plumed into the winter night sky. Sydney Harbour is lucky to have three icons that stand out to any resident or visitor. The sails of the Opera House, the coat hanger of the Sydney Harbour Bridge and the laughing face of the clown marking the gateway to Luna Park. Luna Park holds a special place in the hearts of many Sydney siders. We know it's not the best fun park in the world, We know it's not the most original. And we all have a vague notion that Melbourne has a Luna Park as well. But it's ours. It may not be Disneyland, but for years it was all that the children of Sydney had. Outside of an episode of Skippy the Bush Kangaroo and a local shoot for the Dolph Lundgren version of Marvel's The Punisher, it had no international impact. Australia's Wonderland was cooler in its day, but that park is long since gone sold off to Malaysian property developers and turned into a storage facility. Luna Park is a survivor and we love the place for it. Positioned on grade A prime real estate, right on the edge of the northern tip of Sydney Harbour, the giant clown face marks an ironic depiction of a once glorified symbol of Australian humour. Any passenger by ship to Circular Quay sees the great white clown greet them with an enormous smile. A smile that invites you to enter that mouth. That mouth is the entrance to Luna Park, Sydney's most famous amusement park and mainstay since the 1930s, albeit one with a long storied history of closures, overhauls, protests, brawls and terrible tragedy along the way. The site, located on the shore along the northern end of the Sydney Harbour Bridge, was originally farmland. But in 1924, it was taken over by large workshops and storerooms, housing the equipment used to build the Sydney Harbour Bridge. In the early 30s, a gentleman named Herman Phillips turned the area into the first iteration of Luna Park. Opening in 1935, the new attraction was based on the amusement park of the same name at Coney Island, New York, and mimicked earlier versions in Australia set up in Melbourne in 1912 
and Glenelg in Adelaide in 1930. Arthur Barton was an artist-in-residence from 1935 to 1970. In the 50s, he designed a happy entrance face, which became the iconic symbol. In the past, Luna Park had a more romantic vibe than it does today and was really a place for young adults, not small children. During World War II, it was a popular destination, particularly for servicemen, despite the neon lights that had to be dimmed so as not to risk drawing the attention of invading Japanese air or sea forces. This popularity drew prostitutes to the area, and fights were commonplace, especially between American troops and local servicemen. When its construction was proposed in 1933... One Reverend Calder feared there would be nightly orgies there which could not be checked. No such luck, but not as crazy a fear as it sounds now. The face-shaped entrance was likely inspired by a Parisian nightclub called Hell, where people entered through the mouth of a red-faced devil. Catching the train to Milson's Point and walking down the hill to Luna Park builds the anticipation. Prior to 1972, Luna Park would close for three months of the year. Operators used those three months to maintain the park with a new coat of paint, checking the mechanics of rides and replacing parts. Post-1972, the park was open all year round, taking away that crucial maintenance period. By the time 1979 rolled around, a lot of the rides were close to 40 years old. The Ghost Train was one of the fairground's most popular rides. Punters sat in small cars shaped like train engines and were transported through a disorientating pitch-black space where they were assailed by terror-inducing sights and sounds. The stop on the Lunar Park Ghost Train Line was called Hell's Railway Station. On June 9, 1979, John, Damien and Craig Godson walked through the mouth of the Laughing Clown entrance with excitement. Jenny Poitavan, formerly Jenny Godson, feels that destiny was at play on the night of June 9th, 1979. I was just standing at the door of Coney Island and all of a sudden I got this thought that I wanted an ice cream. It was just the most bizarre thing, she said. I asked the boys if they wanted an ice cream and they said no. So off they went with their father and that was that. I didn't meet them there, they were gone. John and his two sons stepped through the gate. They took their seats on the train behind a group of young people from Waverley College, a school only a short drive east from Luna Park. The boys from Waverley College were on an excursion organised by their school. It was a decent crowd at the park that night, and for the ride itself, 35 people boarded the train and settled themselves in for the thrills to begin. The safety restraints locked in place at 10 past 10pm and the train entered through the horror-themed doors into the dark tunnel beyond. At 10.15pm, students seated in the front car of the ghost train began to shift in their seats, craning their necks around to see behind them, glancing to the ceiling with puzzled expressions on their faces. Does anyone else smell smoke? Unease seemed to ripple back through the train, and soon enough all passengers were catching the scent of smoke, and anxiously trying to trace it to the source. Standing at the exit to the ride, park staff and security had no such confusion. Thick black smoke began to pour out of the doors. The fire emanated from the centre of the ghost train complex, the passages and cupboards that housed the electrical wiring and allowed for maintenance access. 
The passengers had no idea of this. They were only aware of the thickening smoke filling the corridors of the ride and the creasing heat that began to accompany it. People began calling out for help, though it's unclear if any of their cries reached the attending staff, who seemed frozen in panic at the unfolding disaster. Through it all, the ride didn't stop. The train kept moving forward. This proved too much for John Godson. With visibility getting worse by the second, the smoke making it harder and harder to breathe, what was the likelihood of anyone actually being able to come to the rescue? The best chance to survive was to find their own way out. Forcing open the restraints on his train car, John gathered his two sons and climbed over the side, taking them by the hands and setting out on foot for the emergency exit. Alerted by the noise they made, the four students seated in the car ahead of the Godsons turned to see what they were doing. It is not known whether John encouraged them to follow him or not, but his determination must have made the boys, Jonathan Billings, Richard Carroll, Michael Johnson and Seamus Rahili, confident enough to follow them. Climbing over the side of the still-moving ghost train, they set off to follow the Godsons' direction. At least the direction they thought they saw them go. When Jenny Godson made her way over to the ghost train shortly after, with an ice cream in her hand, she was met with a terrifying sight of smoke pouring out of the ride her entire family had just entered. By this time, someone had snapped the staff to their senses, and as if trying to make up for their earlier frozen panic, a flurry of activity ensued. Emergency services were contacted. While the ride attendants did their best to keep the gathering crowd of onlookers at a safe distance, team members were dispatched to bring the park fire hose, while a handful discussed the possibility of going in. When the inexperienced staff arrived with the nearest hose, the crowd looked on in disbelief as a weak stream of water barely managed to clear the roof of the ghost train. These efforts would not be abandoned before the Sydney Fire Department arrived on the scene. But it was clear that the park's fire suppression system was totally inadequate to combat the growing blaze. It is possible that it contributed to the protection of the neighbouring rides, the river caves and the roller coaster the Big Dipper, which came through the event miraculously unscathed. Inexplicably, the mechanical workings of the ride never failed in spite of the damage caused by the fire. And soon enough, train cars began to burst through from the doors accompanied by massive plumes of smoke ascending into the night sky. By this point, the fire had spread throughout the whole interior of the complex, and passengers recall the fear that they may not reach the end of the line. Cars breaching the interior sets of doors were greeted with walls of flame four metres high. As each car emerged from the exit, staff members rushed to assist the weak and disorientated passengers. Many were bodily lifted and carried from the ride to a clearing where they could recover. Each car through was met with a cheer from onlookers as more and more people drew fresh air into their lungs. But seven passengers were unaccounted for. Upon arriving, Sydney fire crews soon took command of the situation and after fighting the fire for 25 minutes, the brave firefighters stormed the inferno. With the blaze and smoke still making it difficult to see, 
They only had one option. Follow the tracks. Taking no chances, they scoured the interior for any signs of life. All the while, the fight against the blaze continued. Outside, Jenny Godson was waiting in a daze for any word on what had happened to her family. When the fire was down to smouldering embers, the fire teams were able to access more areas of the ghost train complex. Systematically following each corridor and path, they came to the grim discoveries of two clusters of bodies. The Godsons huddled together in one tunnel. Father John draped over his boys, Damien and Craig, as if trying to shield them from the suffocating smoke. And the group of school friends from Waverley College also found huddled together. It became clear that after abandoning the train cars to reach safety, they lost their way in the dark. Tragically, if they had stayed on the train, they would have survived. Standing at the forefront of the crowd, Jenny Godson became desperate. She tried to attract the attention of fire crew members who were too preoccupied with keeping the fire controlled to spare a moment. Finally, she found an attentive staff member who brought her to the recovery area and promised to find someone who could help her. Each car that made its way out of the blaze that did not carry her family deepened the sense of dread and threatened to engulf her. She was so focused on the doors, hoping against hope for one more car to come through, that she didn't notice when staff members brought a young man to wait beside her. Jason Holman was a fellow student at Waverley College and had been enjoying his own night at the park with his friends, Jonathan, Richard, Michael and Seamus. Although Jason had been seated directly behind his four school friends, he had not joined them when they left the train car to follow the Godsons. Too dazed to fully grasp the situation, Jason had no idea that the woman beside him had just lost her entire family. Years later, when looking back on that night and the moment that a distressed firefighter informed her of the tragic fate of her family... Jenny remembered the comforting presence at her side. I wanted to stay there and I remember someone standing beside me and until a few years ago, I didn't realise who that was, but it ended up being Jason. In the months and years that followed, the pair ended up becoming lifelong friends, bonded over a tragedy that others would have difficulty understanding. Jenny, these days Jenny Poitavan, cherishes the connection with another survivor of that night. More than just common circumstance. Jenny and Jason seem connected by shared emotional scars that came down to the simplest, almost inexplicable of choices. We sort of had survivor's guilt. We're here and they're all not. That still haunts both of us today. It's just something that doesn't leave you. You learn to live with it, but those sort of feelings, they're innate in you, so it doesn't go away. Jason could not explain why he remained in his seat while his friends attempted to find their own way to safety. Any more than Jenny could explain the sudden craving for ice cream that led her away from the ride that night. A craving she had almost never experienced before. After years spent wrestling with the pain and loss... Jason and Jenny have never been offered an adequate explanation for the fire. 
For her part, Jenny believes the fact that she and Jason survived that night is attributed to one thing. Fate. It was meant to be, she said. Part two of this story will continue next episode as we look at the mysterious circumstances of the fire. I'm Alex Malone, and this has been Fairground Cuts. New episodes of Fairground Fuckups are released every Monday. This podcast was produced by Piccolo Podcasts. We make branded podcasts for local businesses or companies and produce our own original shows. If you want to know more about Piccolo Podcasts or are thinking of starting your own show, head to our website, piccolopodcast.com.au or find us on Twitter and Instagram at Piccolo Podcasts. The link to our website is in the episode notes.